This is a Crow's Nest podcast. And welcome back to Titanic Talkline. I am Alexia. That part hasn't changed. Uh, what also hasn't changed is how excited I am for this next interview. Uh, but before I get into that, I just want to thank you all for listening so far. Um, if you're new to the show, please go back and listen to my previous interviews. They are all amazing. I have some awesome interviews coming out as well. Um, I'm going to be talking to Simon Medhurst, LA Beatles, and I got to talk to Raph Avila, that Titanic guy, and LA is the Titanic girl, so I think now all I need to do is get a round panel together, or a Hunger Games situation, huh. I didn't really ask either of them, honestly, so I don't know why I'm speculating. <laughs> oh well, I'm recording on a Friday and I'm slightly out of my mind always, so uh, I'm going to stop talking. Uh, once again, thank you all for joining. Please go back and listen to previous ones, leave me a review, all that good, nice stuff, and enjoy my interview with Ryan Moss. Ah, well, I know who my guest is today because I'm looking at him, but just to get right to it, would you tell everyone on the Titanic Talk line who you are and maybe like the condensed version of your story of how you came to Titanic? Because I'm, I'm going to get into that like super soon. Yeah. <laughs> So yeah, I'm I'm Ryan Moss. Um, I'm primarily a digital artist, and I do work for a project management company uh, based out of Austin. But I've loved Titanic ever since third grade. I read a book that my third grade teacher passed around the class, and the art. I've always been an art-minded person, even as a kid. The mm -hmm. art in that book stole my heart. I can't even remember the book. I can never find it. It's not one that. It's not like Don Lynch or Ken Marshall, who are the popular painting right. painters you know but um i've looked all over for this book never could find it but anyway my i just love titanic ever since and then of course the movie came out when i was in sixth mm -hmm. grade which you know cemented that passion even more so right yeah what tell me about tell me a little about the book because i wonder if someone listening might know about this book like, was it a kid's book or was it what it was, was it it was a kid's okay book. It, it was a kid formatted book it was like pictures like Every page was completely illustrated, um, uh -huh. and, you know, it was probably each page had a paragraph on it, you know, and um, here was the thing that marked that book. It was the only book I saw that had a celebratory band at Southampton that had, like, a full brass band, not huh. violins and cellos like you would see on the Titanic, but mm -hmm. they were standing at the dock, and there was, like, it looked like fireworks shooting off, and this band had a brass band. It's the only book I've ever seen with this image in it, and so... That's it. I hope someone can find it now because I think that's unique enough of a descriptor where someone out there is going to be like, I also read that book. Yeah. But I, I didn't, so I can't help you. I was hoping it was going to be an easy one like the Magic Treehouse book. <laughs> it's not. No, and I've seen the Magic Treehouse book. It's not that one. Yeah. When when did you... When did you wow. <clears throat> Words are, are fascinating. Um how old did you say you were when the when the movie came out? I think because we're I think we're a similar age. Yeah, so I, I am thirty six, um, and the movie came out when I was I was in sixth grade, and so yeah, I was I was in I was eight. I was in third grade. So yeah, I remember. I think that you're right in that a lot of people in our age bracket, it was inescapable that yeah. the Cameron Titanic is inevitably what just scooped everyone up. Oh yeah, for sure. 
and e even to this day, it's funny, I love the movie so much, but there's things now after doing so much research for my book alone, there's like, mm -hmm. I wish Cameron didn't do this. And, and Ooh, like one, what? For instance, Murdoch. Everyone's going to say it. William Murdoch. That is not how that man would have lived or done a thing. And I know he had to sell that story somehow, some way, to make Cal more evil. But, mm -hmm. uh, yeah, William Murdoch is quite the hero, if you know the man for real. You know, it's interesting because I just finished an interview, which I have not published yet because I'm lazy, with um, Dan Parks, who runs WilliamMurdoch.net. Okay. Which is, I don't know if you're familiar with that website, but it's like one of the big ones um, about Officer Murdoch. And we talked really extensively about that plot point. And one thing that Dan brought up that he thought was the biggest step too far with Murdoch's storyline was the bribery plot. Yeah. Is that how you think about it, too? Or do you yeah. just kind of, like, not like the overall, overall everything? Yeah, the bribery part and, and the suicide. I There is no proof in all the testimonies that an officer committed suicide. I've, I've, I've cross-examined tons of officer accounts. I, I hardly ever find that. And so I feel like maybe they shouldn't have gone that way. That's artistic licensing. And, you know, every, every you know movie does that to anything historical. Right. So... I, I agree, and I, I not that I think it's unimportant, but the only reason I don't want to focus on the suicide is because I I made I made Dan Park talk about that for like forty five right. minutes. So, but he was the reason I wanted to bring up the bribery plot, especially with Murdoch, is because to me that was the thing that really made him look like a gray character. Because yeah. if you eliminated the bribery plot, you can kind of see how someone caught up in a massive disaster might just be like, I'm done. Yeah. But the bribery thing was, yeah, I didn't like that. <laughs> I didn't like it either. Yeah, like you said, in a disaster, who's going to care about money anymore? That's when right. money just, the thought of money even goes down the drain. Like, the moment you're in danger, that's the last thing I think about, you know. Any any human would. You I'm going to get rich so. during this disaster. <laughs> yeah, and it, that reminds me of the, 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 the deleted scene that was... Um, Spicer Lovejoy chasing Jack and Rose yeah. through a sinking ship over a diamond and where I'm like, listen, I get that's millions of dollars, but also you're not just running through the dry parts of the ship, you're running through waist high water. Yeah, you're already freezing your legs off. I mean the yes. water yeah, is below freezing as it is. It's the you know, the only temperature that can hold a freeze without turning into ice. Because <laughs> mm -hmm. it's salt water. Is there something that you put in your book? almost specifically because it was wrong in the Cameron film. I know that sounds like a very weird roundabout no, question, but like, <laughs> yeah, actually um, it's, it's turning, it's making people not look like they care only for themselves. And in this case, specifically my main character, John Harper, if you know, John Harper, he's a pastor out of Scotland and he's, like I said, it, my book follows two stories, but John Harper specifically He's a selfless man throughout his character, throughout the sinking even. I mean, he gives his life. And I, spoiler alert, but, <laughs> you know, it's, I mean, if you know his story, you know this is going to happen inevitably. It's like watching the movie Titanic. Um, but he's he's selfless to the very end. And I, because of Cameron's, you know, predict, you know perceptions of people who are, are very selfish, I want to correct that and say, no, there's people who are super unselfish. And, and this man's life was exemplary in that. So, yeah, that was definitely one of them. 
that seems like an important that seems like an important point to bring up though is that whenever anyone takes artistic license especially with real people not fan fiction where you're messing with like Edward Cullen and nobody really cares but when these are real people you're always going to kind of tickle the zeitgeist in that way where someone's going to get upset about something that was said no matter how you do it and like what I know that this is kind of weird, but especially when writing something like Titanic, where you're going to get people who have strong opinions, like, are you doing anything to brace yourself for that? <laughs> yeah. Like, are you going to a therapist to build up mental walls or something? I Like, what do, you, what, do you, what do you do when you're really taking a risk like that? I don't write historical fiction for a reason. I do fantasy because yeah. I don't have to fact check it like that. Right. Yeah. And the, and the thing is with my research, uh, I did a lot of cross-examinations, like, can this really be the true story? You know, is this really what happened? You know, and I know mine's a more historical fiction because we don't know every single detail of every hour. I can't sure. claim a nonfiction book out of it, but I can claim that most of the, you know, the sequencing of events happened this way based off of the people who knew him, especially John Harper, you know, his, his sister, who's really his like very distant cousin, but they are like brother and sister relationship. Mm-hmm. They're that close. Um, her testimony of him is very powerful. And then the testimony of his own daughter, um, who she had to watch and say goodbye to her papa. But he said, I'm staying behind for a mission. I have something to do here. And he knew he was going to die. And that, it speaks volumes. Yeah. I'll admit I don't know too much about this man's story. And... yeah. Do you want, can you tell me a bit about yeah. it? Because like, yeah. I am always down to learn about somebody new, and I, I, I don't know much about him. So my book follows two stories, one from a first-class mm-hmm. perspective, uh, Daniel and Mary Marvin. That's what the book opens up with them, and I can tell you more about them in a minute because uh, their stories are very special, too. And that's There's a reason why both of these stories are in here. The excerpt you shared with me, um, just for the benefit of the listeners, was centered around um, Dan right. and Mary, who, who you're talking about. Yeah, and then John Harper joins a little bit later in that excerpt um, with his their entrance on the second class promenade. And so so John Harper, you know, he grew up in Glasgow, Scotland, and he was a pastor on a Baptist church on Paisley Road. He boarded Titanic as a second class passenger, but this wasn't his first crossing. He had done a series of revival meetings in Chicago a year prior, and he had actually sailed on the Mauritania. You know, he he'd been crossing several times and you know he had a mission to be um a evangelical pastor and so that's his story and then he goes back to pick up his daughter because he hadn't spent a lot of time with her and he, and he decided to take her on this this voyage across the atlantic to go back to chicago and you know her caretaker is is his late wife's um niece actually and so that's who jesse but they have like a brother and sister relationship and that's the neat part she's taking care of his daughter while he's gone right and so he boards titanic and um yeah their story unfolds there very powerful story and you know during the voyage it's it's a mainly quiet voyage for them you know and i actually have letters that he sent off in queenstown you know more more of that's in the meat of the book and you know there's there's descriptions that he puts in those letters that gives you a lot of clues about what's going on on the voyage and you know he says for you know the most part it's roughly a you know quiet voyage and then and then comes the sinking where his his story really takes a lot of grip and um yet and he actually knew based once again this is off of his 
his sister's t- testimony, um, Jesse's testimony of him, he basically got up in the middle of the night after the ship hit the iceberg. He knew immediately something was wrong. Like, because they their cabin was probably on E-deck in the second class after the Right. Day. You would definitely know. You'd feel it, right? And so he got up, and he was probably one of the first to put a life vest on his daughter. Um, mm. He was just a good father. How and old was she? She was nine years old. Oh, so yeah. really little. Little little girl, and she knew what was going on. You could tell by her testimonies, too, um, that she'd given later on. She knew exactly what was going on. But I'm he, not the world's biggest fan of children like i'm one of quote unquote those people but i also give kids a lot of credit they're extremely smart especially when it's emotional stuff like they may not get politics but they know mommy angry yeah daddy sad you know no matter how how old or young they are a nine-year-old's definitely gonna know that it's not ice cream time right when i mean that's smart enough that's old enough to know and perceptive enough to understand yeah i have two children of my own and so i i get this perspective from from them too. And I wrote this book before I even had children. So it's interesting to go back and start doing the art for it and say like, Whoa, yeah, this is, this is interesting. <laughs> I can't imagine being this dad and my child's in danger now. And you know, I have this like this dad part of me. It's like, I got to save my kid. <laughs> um, but anyways, yeah, during the sinking, um, it, John's story became kind of popular amongst definitely evangelicals because what he did was he, he decided to get, his daughter and his sister on on lifeboat number 11 and after that if you know lifeboat number 11 it it was pretty late in the sinking when it was lowered and lifeboat 11 was actually nearby the ship pretty close Um, but john harper stayed aboard because he just all he wanted to do was share the gospel to people and he said it he said it to jesse he's like i'm going to stay behind i have a mission to do and this is what i'm going to do and she's like okay brother you're kind of crazy but sure why not But anyway, so he stayed behind, the ship goes down, and the very powerful part of the story is after it goes down, John Harper's in the water, and he talks to a man, another guy from Scotland, happens to be from Scotland, and he's a younger guy, and he he tells him the gospel, and then he goes off and he dies. But the younger guy gets picked up, not by Officer Lowe, he's not one of the, the four sole survivors there, but he's probably on the upside-down lifeboat later on, they probably picked him up. Just based off a of testimony. And then later on, years later, down the at, way after the sinking, um, there's a really, uh, it's, it's like a memorial service in Canada, of all places, for the Titanic survivors. And they're at, they're at a Baptist church. And this, this the same young Scots guy stands up in the middle of the whole thing, says, I'm a Titanic survivor, and I believe I'm John Harper's last convert. And, of course, all these chills goes through the crowd and, it's, it's an interesting story, and so it's really powerful, and that's the Harper story of the book. <laughs> I think it's a really good story, and I mean, there's a lot of stories of, you know, various acts of heroism right. throughout the night, from, you know, Charles Jacquin throwing, you know, deck chairs overboard, knowing yes. that people could climb on them, to, you know... I'm I'm not a religious person myself, but I I went to Catholic school and I grew up Christian, so I know that especially for people who are of specific denominations of faith, that there are very specific things that you know need to happen. You know, like in Catholicism, there's a strong emphasis on things like the last rites, and mm, yeah. I know that for people who are probably no, not probably who are meeting death, to especially people who are strongly religious, 
to be able to have that authoritative presence of a priest or a pastor in your last moments, the way you were told it was going to happen, right. must have been a tiny amount of comfort because, you know, that's how people picture it, being laid to rest with the blessing from, you know, the priest. Right, right. And so, yeah, his his story, um, I think, really, it captured me a long time ago, back in 2007 when I first read about it. And I cross-examined other testimonies from people in Lifeboat 11 and, and of course, his own family. And so that's kind of where that one went. Now, the Marvins, the other story, it's, it's a really good one, too. And it's funny that you mentioned Charles Joffin because he actually... Um, Mary was put in boat number 10 and, and Charles was actually helping people get into boat number 10. So there's like a little cross there um, of testimony there that kind of helped guided what, how she got into boat number 10 too. Um, she actually got hurt um, getting into boat number 10, but more about that in a second, but her, their stories. So Daniel and Mary Marvin, they're probably, their story is probably a little more known because they are first class than, than uh, the Harper story. But Daniel's father is Henry Marvin. He's uh, one of the guys that owned American Biograph. And it's a company that was in competition with the Edison Group, I know. And this is just history. And so, I don't know anything about anything. I'm sure other people know. <laughs> this is the only person who probably has a clueless face is me. But I appreciate you bringing it down. <laughs> it's okay. No biggie. It's just some historical context. Mm-hmm. And so, you know. Context helps. Their, their wedding is the first to ever be filmed with a cinemagraph camera that, you know, those winding cameras that you just like yeah. frame. Um, and that so, would explain, sorry, not a spoiler for your book, but that would explain why on like page two, Daniel's just whipping one of those out. Yes. Like from his Mary Poppins pocket, he's just got this camera. Exactly. And <laughs> well, he loves film. and mm-hmm. It makes sense. And he's a young guy too. I mean, Daniel's yeah. only 18 years old and Mary is Gosh. 17. Yeah. Okay, these are children. These are children. And so he's excited yeah. about the camera, right? You know, he's always wanted to be a filmmaker. His mm-hmm. his father helped invented that camera that put them in competition with the Edison group. Because Edison came out with one of their own. And so, mm-hmm. um, and so, and Mary, she is, she is actually a model. She's a fashion model. Um, that's her background. That's why, you know, she got her fur coat on, her big fluffy <laughs> hat. And so even though hats were very popular back then, yes. y'all talked about fashion. I know your conversation with Veronica and food, mm-hmm. of course. And so <laughs> I, I love that interview, by the way. That was such Aww. a good interview. Veronica was so fun to talk to, but I think that hat's really important because yeah. when you, I can't think of an item of fashion that is more innocuous today than a gigantic hat. Like you just don't, it's something that when you see it, you assume it's for an occasion. It's not something that comes around. I think I used the wrong word. Innocuous is not the word that I wanted, but too late. I'm not going back to correct it. But it's it's the same thing with gloves to me for men and women. It's just sort of a thing where it's just it's such a staple of the day then, not a thought to it now. Yeah. Or like scarves. You know, in the fall, everyone has this big scarf with you know, it's got to look a certain way. You know, I, I think scars of, of the hats back in 1912 and Edwardian periods. That's fair. Yeah. Scars are very, very telling. They're like a personality test. Yes, they are. <laughs> Even for men. I see men with scars. I'm like, yeah, you're a scarf guy. I like Nothing a scarf, wrong with a scarf. You know, I was going to say, they're so warm. <laughs> they are. They're comfortable. <laughs> Functional. Even in Texas, I, I've worn a scarf before. <laughs> 
but yeah, I'm I'm from Maryland, so I wear them in the in the cold weather, and it makes a difference, especially yeah. when you're walking that dog in 30 degree weather. That scarf's gonna save your neck, literally. <laughs> so I I get it, but in yeah, in Mary's case, she's got a massive fur coat, which yeah. I know that it was cold, but was it really that cold? Surprisingly, in England in the spring, it can be. I mean, the the temperature in Southampton that day was recorded at about sixty degrees um, Fahrenheit. I was asking because in the Cameron film, they see. I mean, Rose is wearing seventy five layers, but it's yeah. clear that outfits for springtime. Yeah, and they were, and and hers, you know, she's covering herself up, and she's wearing a day outfit, just almost similar to Rose below that coat, but. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, according to the research, it, it was a kind of chilly English morning, if you can imagine. Kind of hazy uh, when the sun finally let out. Yeah, 60 on the seaside, too. I forgot about that. Yeah, so there's a bit of chill, you know, of humidity in there. That kind of comes along with that. So, yeah, Mary, um, with that outfit and hat, she uh, she and her husband board Titanic as first-class passengers. Um, it's very, very obvious. They exit a rental car, too. Uh, yes. <laughs> And it's it's really interesting why they're even first class because really their parents bought their honeymoon. That's this is their parents and and most first class passengers. A lot of them are also innovative entrepreneurs. I know I know there's that racial aspect of, of white privilege that we're, everyone wants to talk about, but a first class passenger is you know marked by what they've done. Like John Jacob Astor, he was an inter- innovative guy. Um, he's an entrepreneur as well and an inventor. Same thing like Daniel's father. And so his father paid for their honeymoon and their ticket. Because these are kids. Those tickets weren't, I was going to say, those tickets were like, it's not $20. No. <laughs> I think some estimates are equivalent to almost like 70 pounds even, like to to the today. I, I don't remember the full price. I don't either. I can't remember. But it's I think really someone... Odd. Yeah, I think when I don't know when it is, but whenever someone does a conversion for like the parlor suite rooms, it always just makes my heart skip like seven beats because I'm like, well, my bank account just got really, really upset by that figure and it's theoretical. Right, right. So, yeah. Yeah. So a very interesting thing about the Marvins is I actually got to do an interview myself over the phone. This was back in 2007 with Mary's grandson's nephew um and it was really fascinating because they have a compelling story which will be in the book as well um his so Stuart DeCamp is Horace DeCamp's grandson and, and Mary Mary's grandson so that's who Mary remarries after Daniel's death on Titanic which spoiler alert <laughs> no what <laughs> no it's everybody you didn't tell me that people died in this book ryan i know we need to have a discussion about your book then probably want to put a disclaimer at the beginning of this that <laughs> will be people discussed. die in your book <laughs> sorry people die in this book that fame that people famously died in real life right. i don't know if that's gonna upset you <laughs> yeah sorry to offend but uh it's reality it's accurate <laughs> The ridiculousness of it, but it's so true. <laughs> I mean, I think that goes back to my really dumb question of like, are you are you ready for the nonsense? Because every I didn't mean to cut you off in the middle of your plot no, description, but just because you know, again, we're we're talking about you didn't you didn't go the Cameron route where you made up a Jack and a Rose. Right. These are all real people. Yeah, yeah, I, yeah. These are, and 
their stories are, are very compelling, especially even on the Marvin's case. Well, Mary, she's going, uh, you know, after she got rescued in boat number 10, you know, she hurt her back when she was thrown into the boat. Um, Ow, really bad. I imagine. Yeah, she had an injured back after that. And, you know, in 1912 of all times to have an injured back. Oh, I know. She remarries later on to this guy named Horace DeCamp, and I um, got to interview their their grandson's nephew, whose name is James DeCamp. But anyway, Stuart DeCamp, their grandson, knew, had a really tight relationship with their grandma, uh, with Mary, and very fascinating enough, she kept all the, the photos and the, the reels of Daniel's voyage, like, because he filmed a lot of the voyage, because he loves cameras. He filmed, you know, them on the boat deck, and he filmed them everywhere. But unfortunately, Mary kept those reels to herself. They're not going to be found in a museum. They're not going to be found anywhere, because uh, right now they're at the. All of them are at the bottom of a river. Yeah. So sorry, you didn't say the ocean. I was about no, to say, yeah, that makes sense. You said a river. I'm going to need some context. I had, yeah, I was like, I have about 14 questions, but I have a feeling you're about to answer them, so I'm going to stop. Oh yeah. So Stuart. Stuart and his grandma went out for a boat ride on the river. They lived in New York um, near the Adirondacks, if you're familiar with that area. Um, I'm not, but I'm familiar with the name of the river. <laughs> yeah, Adirondacks is like a big national uh, park. And um, they they were out on a, on a boat ride, and Mary has in her hands these reels. And one of them's of their wedding, the first wedding to ever be filmed. And then the other reel is the entire voyage of Titanic and all their time spent together. And she did not talk about Titanic to her grandson at all because she was so devastated, so devastated at the loss of Daniel just and just her health afterwards. You know, it was just amazing that she even brought these reels out of the closet, wherever she kept them. And she told the story to Stuart. She didn't talk about it much to the rest of the family, but that her relationship with her grandson was this close and, um, and I got it confirmed with, you know, talking this interview secondhandly by the nephew. Mm-hmm. And, you know, she tossed those, those reels into the river. She wanted nothing to do with them. You know. <laughs> like, ah! I know, I was going to say, I, I think part of my discussion with, was it Jared Honda? Yes, we were both Jared. like, um, do you yeah, raise exactly. the, piece, the big piece up, right? The big piece of the Titanic, that. when y'all were raising it up from the bottom of the ocean, y'all talked about... <sighs> How you hate yes. that. It's the same well, concept. Well, you... for me, it's more like, I, in today's world, we look back and it's like, you threw away memorabilia from the Titanic, Grandma, what is wrong right. with you? But, you know, I have gone full scorched earth on things that remind me of bad events. Like, you know, I am a typical person. When I got broken up with, I wanted to set things on fire, right. and you I did. Right. And, you know, maybe like, I'm just going to pretend that if I get famous tomorrow, someone might, I might think like, ah, that ridiculous journal that I had might have been worth something. Or someone might think that like, too bad you burned those journals. And I would be thinking, "Mm, is it though? Is it like, were they that important? They were important enough for me to destroy. But, you know, on the one hand, of course, I'm like, damn, I'd love to see those reels. But I'm like, I, I empathize with not being able to keep it around, with not being able to have that literal ghost following you around of, right. and have it recorded in that way. Because I imagine that itself is exceptionally traumatic because it's not just you lost your husband on this ship, but the ship has now become this massive cultural fascination. And the minute she, I'm betting you the second she told someone about that, there'd be 
journalists being like, right. we want that footage. How much will you pay? We'll pay you. We'll pay you. We we'll give it to us exclusivity. Money, money, money. Right, right. And she did. I don't think she wanted that. She kept it all to herself. And rightly so. You know, and I, I when I first read the story, um, <laughs> my first reaction was, I actually get it, you know, because why would you want to be remembered of the loss of your love, you know, your first love, too, you know, this is a very hard loss, and why would you want to be reminded of it? Burn it all! <laughs> Except she just tossed it in the river, but, um... Yeah. I read, um, Hazel Gaynor's novel, The Girl Who Came Home. It's, um, another fictional, another historical fiction, and it has that a similar plot where... A woman named Maggie is a survivor on the Titanic, and she never speaks of it until she decides to tell her granddaughter one day. And that's how the story unfolds. And it's almost how it happened in um, in Titanic the movie, where, like, at the very end, doesn't Rose even say, like, I never talked about this to anybody, and, like, this is her granddaughter being like, whoa, this is the lens on your life. Yeah. And I think Cameron did a great job with that part, with that aspect of the old Rose. I loved, loved the expressions on her face. That is like one of the best actors. What was that? Gloria Stewart. Man, just some of those expressions, those like brought me to tears. I'm like a young dude when I first start the movie and, <laughs> and like an old lady just, oh, oh, it's so good. So good. I think part of what makes old Rose's story compelling, and I know some people hate the present day sequences in this movie, but for me, what makes her story compelling is that very often I think people not intentionally but like we disregard the elderly in a way where it's like okay grandma eat your soup but um in this she is not only telling a story she's telling a story a compelling story in a compelling way and not only are people listening she is the authority on that subject in the room in a room full of scientists and explorers and researchers this a hundred year old woman is sitting there being like you don't know anything, because, not because you're not smart, not because you didn't research, but because you weren't there. That's the most powerful, powerful statement right there, yep. Because you weren't there. And that's why, you know, I take all these testimonies that I've gathered up. They are the authority because I wasn't there. <laughs> I'm, just yeah. trying to, I'm just trying to retell these stories the best I can because not very many people know about them. And I think they're compelling, like, like in the Harper story. Hardly anybody knows this man's story. And I just want to share it with everybody because it's just a, a very selfless act, you know. It's important to highlight the fact that even in it, you know, I think that this is also what makes the Titanic a compelling story year after year. It's that you can always find little slivers of heroism in absolutely harrowing moments. And it can be simple stuff. Like, it, it can be as heroic as, you know, Lightoller and Murdoch and all the officers literally toiling their fingers off to get people off the ship. Or it's as simple as comforting somebody because inevitability has reared its head. Yeah. I think those are good. Yeah. So, yeah, um, with, with kind of the rest of the story... <laughs> The meat of it. Um, my excerpt only covers the first 17 pages. It's this is a full on. It's what I call a short novel. It's 120 pages total, about 12 chapters. Um, is that it, with the illustrations? Yes, I'm gonna I'm gonna fully illustrate the whole thing. Um, and the, the but is it 112 that, pages already illustrated, or is that just text? That's all text. 
Okay, because that's going to be way longer. <laughs> yes, because I'm trying to format it, and I'm still working on formatting. Um, yeah, that seems like the hard part. Yeah, because I, I have a certain vision. I want to capture this part of Titanic, but I want my characters to look this way. And so I got to work my text around the whole illustration. And sometimes I have to, like, you know, change the opacity of the entire illustration. I use tons of color. And so sometimes it looks like this dull picture, but it kind of captures also this authentic old look too. And so I have to balance that throughout right. throughout the art. <laughs> yeah, it's again those creative decisions where it's, yeah. you know, you have to make like you have to make a decision. Am I gonna change the opacity of the drawing? Am I gonna add a text box behind the text and make it semi-transparent? Right. Am I gonna do da 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 da? You know, there's a hundred million decisions that go into how you're gonna portray anything. Right. And so I yeah, I gotta make those and then Another thing that is how much do I do a full detailed illustration every page or do I do like in some of the excerpt, there's one of them talking to their steward. Well, I condensed it down to this circle where they're just talking to the steward. I'm not capturing the entire room because I've already captured that detail in their in their first entrance to the cabin when Daniel and Mary seen their cabin for the first time. And I mean, anybody can go see that picture on Twitter when I released of just the one page excerpt. Um, but the full 17 pages so far, you know, it's, it's that balance and they, they are right now, they're flexible because the, there's going to be changes to come. The book still needs a full editing, which mm-hmm. you know, I'm not, not afraid to say it needs to be edited. You know, I wrote this in, you know, 2007 and through 2010, <clears throat> it took me two years to write because I'm working full time and yeah. at nighttime in the coffee shop, I'm working on my book. Like frenetically typing in a corner. Yes, yes. I, I was that guy <laughs> sipping my coffee at night working on this book till about hey. 10 or 11, at, you know, because I'm not a night owl. Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah, no, me neither. <laughs> <laughs> I can't do the one or two o'clock in the morning like some, some of my friends did. It's like mm. I've never been able to do that. I've always been that person that's like, yeah, this is a sleepover and sleep is in the title. Right. Yeah, I can't think of very many things that were as big at the time, film-wise, as Titanic, because also movies didn't come out as fast as they do now. So you really kind of there was often a lull in the box office. Like I'm old enough to remember box office slumps that were almost intentional, where it's like, yeah, well, it's slow now because they're gearing up for the summer or holiday releases. Yeah, I think the movie at the time that was maybe as equal to Titanic was Goodwill Hunting, but it, it wasn't even equal by far. But it came out at the same time. It won a few Oscars when Titanic won, like, the 11 record-hitting 11 Oscars, you know. But I think Goodwill Hunting took the screenplay. Yeah, it did. Which, Which makes sense, because I... Sorry. I love Cameron's film, obviously I do, but... Cameron, my manrin, you're not the best dialogue writer. I'm sorry, you're just not. Sometimes some of those scenes are like, people don't talk like that. Yeah. Ever. Yeah. And there's been a few other Titanic films that I've watched, um, especially ones from like the 50s and 60s. One of my favorite Titanic films is called, it's called Titanic, and it has uh, Clifton Webb and Barbara Stanwyck. Um, it's not as known as like A Night to Remember by Walter Lord, but... This movie, it does a pretty good job, but you still have that 1950s American talk in there when we're talking about British people. I'm like, I think all movies tend to do that, just your context of culture but or where you're filmed, and so everyone struggles with that from time to time, even the best of Titanic movies. 
I, I think A Night to Remember did a pretty good job, though, on trying to keep it who's American, who's British, and, yeah, who's the foreigner, you know, whether you're, yeah, Scottish, Italian. I think they did pretty good with that. Yeah, and that's the thing, is that I like that there were multi, like, a, multis, a multiplicity of ethnic characters in the Cameron film, but, yeah. like, every single one of them was plucked directly from the book of stereotypes. It's I just, hate that. yeah. It's just bonkers to me, where it's kind of like, Fabrizio could not be any more Italian <laughs> if you poured marinara sauce directly on his head. <laughs> oh my god, so right. just like... But it's like, oh my god, and Tommy, too. Like, the second you meet yeah. him, he's like, do you think you might be Irish? I'm kind of Irish. I've got the red hair and the curls, and I've got a, like, snobby attitude, and I have a terrible accent. But it's kind of like the second you see him, you're like, gosh, I wonder if he's from Ireland. Right. He's probably one of those guys who built the Titanic in Belfast. <laughs> <laughs> Talking about big hands and shit. Where it's like, what are you doing, sir? Yeah. Because some of the scenes are absolutely fine. Like, a lot of the scenes with Jack and Rose where they're just chatting are fine but some of them are just like human beings don't speak in any language in that way yeah and i know even in my own book i struggle with that too i i'm like how can i make these people sound authentic or look authentic how can i write authenticity you know i've always uh struggled with that and so yeah that's the hard part But writing an authentic character is hard. And we're, we're coming away from Titanic for a bit, which I don't care. This is my show and I can do what I want to. Yes, you can. But <laughs> it, it's hard to write a well-rounded character because it's like, if you ever try to well-roundedly describe a human being that you know, like if you try to describe for a stranger, say like, I think you had a wedding ring on. Are you married? Yes. If you try to describe your wife to someone, even like me, who's never met her, you'd never be able to quite get everything about her into your description even if i gave you three hours because she's a complex human being with a lot to her backstory and i feel as though some people forget that when you're writing characters is that you're not just writing a character in this moment like you're not just writing dan and mary on the titanic you're writing dan and mary in their life maybe you're cluing in at that moment but they lived lives up until that point and that needs to be reflected reflected back and that's really difficult to do yeah it's a challenge um especially even when i was coming up how to draw my own characters um mm-hmm. my, i bet my, that's a struggle in and of itself if anybody's seen my older art it's it's anime my style has been anime since i've been growing up because i, I do love anime though so i've watched anime <laughs> since you know fifth grade so why not draw it right um <laughs> No, so I, I, I've kind of merged a style of kind of painterly but slash still anime characters just because it's just been the way I've always drawn. Um, but capturing their essence, like from photographs, because I've seen photographs of John Harper and his family and, and even Daniel and Mary. And so I kind of like use them as references to kind of draw the way they look um, and still try to capture that authenticity in some way uh, with an anime looking face. But, you know, it's what it is. <laughs> Your, the way that your art is done, to me, reminds me a little bit of Ghibli anime. Oh, uh, yeah. In that, I don't know why or how to describe it, but it kind of has that very beautiful, background-heavy slice-of-life look to it. Um, and the way that the characters are designed is not as... I mean, not as like rough and tumble as say like Cowboy Bebop or something like that, where it's very angular, but I think it lends really well to the story because 
for people who are unfamiliar with Ghibli films, number one, stop listening to my podcast. Number two, start watching Ghibli films. Um, (laughs) They are, but that's the thing is that they have this gorgeousness to them where that even if the story is simple, the world is constructed in such a way that you can feel it. Ah, yes. And that's, that's the heart that I'm trying to reach with my book. I want, I want it to be felt also read. I want it to read well, but I want it to be felt. Because, like I said, I was captivated just by reading these stories um, when I first learned about them. And, like, man, if I could capture that and how they look, that this would be, you know, the ultimate goal of this book. Um, when I first wrote the book in 2007, I always wanted to put pictures to it. I didn't think about fully illustrating it, but I wanted some pictures. Like, you know, you read some novels and they have, like, a series of pictures right in the middle of a novel. Yes. Just to kind of give you that break. I kind of wanted that at first, but then I was like... I'm an artist. I want this entire thing to be full of illustrations. And so that's why I went this crazy route. (laughs) But I think that's good because my personal ultimate goal with my, the work that I'm writing is I also want it to be an illustrated work. I don't know that I necessarily need, mine's written way more like a very long, annoying novel. So it's like, I get where maybe I wouldn't want it fully illustrated, but illustrations, especially in, in, in a book, can really, really add something. And genuinely, I don't believe enough adult literature capitalizes on that. Right. Yeah. Sometimes I feel like it misses out when it has so much potential. Um, there's adult, in fact, we're talking about Titanic too. There's also adult Titanic books that I've read. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Some come, you know, there's no images in them. And I'm like, but I could picture the story in my head, but I would love to see an illustration of this or that. One of one of the a really good one. It's not really adult, uh, but it is Diane Ho's Titanic: The Long Night. And I don't know if you've ever read that. I read it probably. I think I read it in high school. Um, it was geared towards teenagers, but the writing style is really good, and she captures Titanic in a way I think Cameron almost did with his cinematography. She does it with her words, and that was always inspiring to me. Um, I think she was a great author. She's still alive. I'm acting like she's dead. Uh, <laughs> And she's I do that all the time. <laughs> she's a she's in Texas as well, so you know she's a great <laughs> author. She writes she writes murder mysteries now, but uh, Ooh. but she she does this great Titanic series. It's like two books. Nice. Yeah. I've, I've never heard of it. I'm going to look Diane it up. Ho. Yeah, I'll send you a link to her. Yeah, please do. Diane Ho. I hope you're listening. Um, I think that's important, though. I feel as though kids' literature is a big jump starter for getting kids interested in in history. Like, I'm not personally a big history buff, but I still remember reading young adult historical fiction about the Tudor family Mm. and that kind of helping me understand the dynamics. Because, you know, you learn about Henry VIII and he had a bunch of wives and he killed them all in school. And it's just, right, it's so simple. And you're like, okay, got it, one's the test. Yeah, right. And then... Yeah, exactly. And then you read this book, which, again, historical fiction told from the perspective of, you know, his Mistress Mary of Queen Anne. I think they wrote one from the perspective of Catherine of Aragon, and they were all written from the perspective of the wi- of his, one of his wives. And it helped build context of like, oh, so a woman in court did almost nothing all day. You had no power. Gosh, that sounds boring. Who is that terrible sounding man? It's just like right. you're reading it and it helps as a 13-year-old build a little context because otherwise it's just... Gosh, that man killed a lot of ladies. <laughs> right. <laughs> it, you have to make the story accessible. And I know, to, not to completely segue off on the Tutors, but they made that musical Six, which it's, I haven't seen it yet, but, you know, it kind of 
uh, reminds me a little of Hamilton in the way where it's like, I'm telling you a story in a modern way so that you can understand the past. Right. Yeah. I, I don't know if I would do the same thing to Titanic. It would be kind of <laughs> like, you're going to be on That's a cruise fair. ship, you know, one of the, uh, whatever, a carnival cruise and it goes down, you know? Oh man. I don't know. I don't know if they could work the same way. I don't necessarily. Mm. I do. And I don't think so. I, do you remember the seawall fairy disaster that happened in, was it 2004 yeah, or 14? With Korea. Gosh, what a heartbreaking story. That was, yeah, that was terrible. Yeah. And I think what that teaches us is that we have both learned everything and nothing from Titanic. Right. It's exactly what it teaches us. And I think that wreck in particular, because it, in the same way that Titanic at the time had the Marconi gram and it was able to, like, while it was going down, be spitting out real-time info, as that ferry was going down, we had everyone in there, and there was those children on there all had cell phones. Yeah, they, the cell phones told the story, and it was depressing seeing the ship leaning, people still inside it. And my, when I saw those images, I'm, of course I cried, I'm just an emotional person, um, but... I also put myself there. It's like, I don't think I would still be sitting inside the leaning ship no matter what the crew member told me. Even though I'm a good swimmer, I could think, hmm, maybe I can... My chances are far better outside the ship than inside this this leaning thing. And you see it on their cell phones, and I'm like, oh my gosh. Why aren't these kids on the lifeboats yet? What is wrong with y'all? I know, and, it, and they're kids. Yes, yeah. That's, that's I think... Part. I think that's one of the big things that caught me was that I think people like to think that we have learned a lot from Titanic and, you know, it would never happen. But you have to remember that there was an absolutely absurd percentage of third class children that did not make it. Right. Right. It's the same thing, like, with the shipwreck, the Lusitania. A lot of a lot of the deaths were kids. And yeah. It's, it's tragic, you know. Yeah. Because ocean liners of the day, they weren't like cruise ships in the same way where everyone was on vacation. Some people had everything in, on like their entire family. It wasn't right. just, we can only afford four tickets for this cruise. It was, we are moving to another country. All eight children are getting on this boat. Yeah, immigration, that was your way to travel <laughs> on the ocean liner, um, whether big or small. Because, uh, for example, uh, y'all mentioned the the Atlantic and that yeah. Jared. That's an interesting one, and, and I've read up on that one, and it's kind of... It's I don't like know the, much about it, and I don't think we really got into it with Jared, so do you want to yeah, talk a bit about it? Just a little bit. Um, so, yeah. yeah, it's a smaller... It's a bit smaller than Titanic, but at the time, it was actually one of the bigger ships, but if you compare it to Titanic, it's very small. How big it, was... Like, what was its capacity? Its capacity, I, I if I remember, was, was like 1,200. 1200 okay, so it, it was like a third or a fourth of what the Titanic and it was. It wasn't full on its maiden voyage, but like it was supposed to be able to accommodate like tons of people. And to kind of visualize it, you know, Titanic is like a four smokestack, huge steamer, right? Well, this ship was, you know, is still a, a good sized steamer, but it only had like two smokestacks. So it's about, think of it that way. It's half the size, but it, it had a lot of people on board and it, it wrecked off of uh, Halifax, near Halifax, Nova Scotia. And it hit some rocks. In a stormy sea, if you can imagine. But I can. <laughs> the crazy thing is, the weather really worked against the shipwreck. And I think Jared mentioned it. People, you know, died in these crazy ways. For one, the captain made a couple mistakes trying to get the ship grounded, at least grounded. But yeah. but the waves were just overtaking it. And even every effort to lower lifeboats was insane because the waves were pushing them over. And then finally, the the sole survivors were on rocks. 
throwing out lines to people. And so very few, if any, children survive, if you can think of it, because I don't want to think about it, but because I... the... Yeah, it was just working against them every way. Um, it's a very interesting wreck. One of the saddest ones, I, I think. And it yeah. predated Titanic. Um, it but. did. And I think as Jared and I discussed, it just didn't get the press attention because there wasn't press attention. Right. You, you couldn't just call up your your local paper and say, "Could we need you to talk about this. There wasn't telephones. Right, right. Because, yeah. It was before the Marconi grams were, were invented. And so they didn't send out even i don't i think even their signaling was uh, very primal if you will or it was like we could shoot up a few flares and that's it <laughs> that's our that's our line out was this even before the telegram was available i know nothing about time i i do but i can't remember on this shipwreck in particular well because i also if i remember correctly just based on books i've read about titanic the marconi grams on the ships were a relatively they weren't like brand new that year, but they were relatively new. So I have a feeling that you're right. If there was anything on the Atlantic, it might have been like a pigeon and a quill. Right, right. Uh, so, yeah, it's a very sad disaster. Um, and one that came after Titanic, which we talked about learning lessons from, but didn't, was the Impressive Ireland. That's one that also gets missed a lot. I've heard of this one only in name. Yeah. I do not know anything about this wreck, so... Um, Teach me something. <laughs> the reason why the drama didn't unfold because the ship sank in 15 minutes. That's like the Lusitania. Yeah, that's right. So you don't just got absolutely much. blown right to bits. What, what's sad about the Impressive Ireland is that the ship um, rammed its side. Another steamer, I can't remember the name of it. It's the Stockholm, mm. I think is what it's called. I feel like that's the Andrea Doria ship that hit it. I can't remember. I'm getting mm. confused. But a steamer, another steamer, freight steamer that was carrying coal hit it in the fog and this was a passenger ship coming in on i think it was a river in canada and it was uh -huh. just frigid waters just similar to titanic and this happened two years after titanic oh no and so it got hit on the side and the, and the ship just went on its edge like in 15 minutes it was so fast like people just couldn't even escape except out the portholes off the side of the ship Jeez. so many people got trapped inside and that's why so many died uh. And, and yeah, it's very tragic. Almost as tragic God. as the Atlantic, but... Doesn't you hear about these stories and, like, I'm, again, for the benefit of people who are listening, you can't see my reaction, but I think I've curled... I've curled inwards a lot just hearing about this because you can picture it. And part of it is because we have all these disaster films and many of them are about, like, Titanic and the related... Um, ships. So when you see these dramatic portrayals, you can picture the real life incidents, even if you've like this. I, I, I'd heard of the Empress of Ireland, but I just knew it as a sad shipwreck. But you can pick, you can picture this fog, which is super normal on especially rivers, especially in the cold. It's the same on Seaway. That's what it was. I was trying to remember. Uh, yeah. I know that there was in the past. <laughs> I don't know what it was, but I think it was in the past 50 or 60 years where there was another sort of massive accident involving radar and the fog, but it was a barge. Yeah. Am I completely off? But that happened, and that was also another thing where it's just like, 
In that one, I think they determined there was a little bit of negligence, but also it was just like a barge in a small area in the fog using outdated sonar or radar. It was just a bunch of terrible circumstances where then you add in one tiny sprinkle of negligence and it can all fall apart. Yeah, and you end lives. And that's, that's a sad thing. It's, yeah. And what's interesting about the Empress of Ireland, the captain, after the ship hit the side of it, it was stuck inside next to the Emperor, Empress of Ireland before it sank. The, no. The it. And the captain used a megaphone saying, stay there because if you back up, we're going to founder very fast. And the oh, captain, once again, negligence, started reversing engines and <gasps> pulled out of the Empress of Ireland and then the and they immediately and, sank. Yeah. And it just and then sank just and, Like they say don't pull out a stab if you get stabbed they say don't pull out the thing cuz there might be it might right. be holding back a lot of bleeding. Yeah. <gasps> oh my gosh. Did they just not hear them or were they just panicking like on their own ship like we hit we hit back up back up back up back up. Yeah, I think that was mainly based off the testimony of the captain of the other ship. He's like we didn't know what was going to happen. Uh, the river currents were kind of strong, so we needed to pull out, or we were going to sustain more damage and sink ourselves. And so, God, what a nightmare! Yeah, the whole situation was a nightmare. Um, Awful. I can't. Ugh. Rewatching Titanic, I think to myself, like, what would happen to me? What would I do? And I think Bill and I covered this, or Jared and I covered this, where I was like, I don't think I'd make it unless I got really, really lucky. And. It, it, <sighs> hear stories like this and it's just like these were people's real lives like you're begging someone not to pull their wrecked ship out of your wrecked ship like this is what your life has come to please don't undo the damage you've created because you'll make more and they're doing it and they're doing it yeah right and then just i can't imagine being that captain being like fuck 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 because now now it's happening and no matter what you do the river's coming in it's terrible. Uh, the scary is. part is this also happened at like wee hours of the morning, like three o'clock in the morning. So basically what we're learning is that ships should stop sailing at 11 o'clock at night <laughs> and only resume at seven in the morning. Yeah. <laughs> ships go to sleep. That's what we're learning. Ships like need naps. Wheelers. 18 wheelers are supposed <laughs> to go to sleep. <laughs> I see. You know, I think that this is the lesson we failed to learn from Titanic is that ships like trucks need to sleep. <laughs> yep. Yeah. people we solved it ryan and i fixed it i know it yep. there should be no more shipwrecks from now on just put them to sleep yep. for a little while everybody take a break Go to sleep. But, like, like a ship like anything else like you have you ever tried to drive your car for more than 24 hours straight your car's gonna get mad at you even if it's brand new and tuned up just because it's going for 48 plus hours it's not designed to do that fails all the mechanics fail you know you overdo it mm-hmm. so and dan parks brought this up in, in his interview too and one thing he pointed out was that the carpathia um was super negligent in the measures it took to get to titanic and because it worked we're all like what a hero but the reality is and he goes into it a little bit more is that that is that Captain took a lot of bonkers risks because he was just breakneck speed flying it because he knew it was an emergency. Yeah. However, he also endangered his entire ship. Yep, and passengers and crew. <laughs> exactly. And it worked. So we're all like, yay! But it also could have really gone wrong and then we would have had the Titanic and the Carpathia going down on the same day. Yeah. 
I think Captain Rostron of the Carpathia, he had a really good heart. Um, his intentions were, were good, but that Absolutely. ice field was insane. I've seen maps of that ice field, and how do you navigate a ship through that? I don't know. Especially in those conditions, you know, it's still waters. There's no moon out, so you can't see icebergs. It's Anything. And the reflection, because the waters are so still, this is what hurt Titanic. The waters were so still, you couldn't make out what was the sky and what was the ocean in some places. And so icebergs are just, what are they? You can't even see the silhouettes of them hardly because the moon's not even out. And so yeah. That was very endearing of Rostrum. It was. And again, it worked and we're all grateful because he, if he hadn't made it there, those people probably would have just died of exposure because it's still cold. But the other thing too, is that it's just about technology. There was so many miscommunications that the only reason Carpathia found Titanic is because they just like stumbled upon a lifeboat. It was like, oh, that is what we're looking for. How convenient. But speaking of negligence though, and other ships in the area, you know, we always Uh talk about the Californian too. We do. But we have to because, you know, had the wireless on Titanic not told them to shut up that, you know, <laughs> that evening, we, we might have a different story where they wouldn't have ignored them. I, know, I don't know. And if, Who knows? But I think that, again, this goes back to so many what ifs where it's like, they used to have hours on the Marconi operators. Right. So it totally makes, like if I was ending my shift and I was calling the next ship and I was like, Hey Katie, just want to let you know that there's some ice up ahead. We're a little stuck right now. And the response of that I got was like, bitch, shut the fuck up. If you're like, well, okay, I'm going to bed and good luck. Click. Yeah. And that's what would happen. And then obviously the next day I'd wake up and feel horrible. But in the moment it's like, well, I'm done with my shift. I was just trying to be nice. I was supposed to be off five minutes ago and my bed is that way. So I think that, you know, people give him a lot of, a lot of shit, but I'm also like, I think I do the same thing. You need your sleep. Honestly, you need your sleep. And he, he had no clue. He took, you know, his, his earphones out. So he couldn't even hear messages anyways. Um, yeah. The crazy part is, you know, California is seeing rockets going off in the distance and they didn't even move towards that direction. They're like, oh no, we're staying put because the ice is too heavy over here. So I listen, I try to defend the Californian just because I, I try to not, you don't want to think there's a bunch, well, you don't want to think there's a bunch of douchebags on a ship nearby no, who are like, no. who are like, what's that over there? <laughs> but that's the part where you, I lose it for them. That's the indefensible part. Yeah. Some obviously is going on. Nobody just shoots random rockets in the air. Obviously. Not unless you live in the United States. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Especially Texas with fireworks. Oh my gosh. <laughs> Speaking of 4th of July warning. coming up, looking forward to those in 3 a.m. Not. I am not looking forward to those. I have nothing to celebrate this year. And also loud and hot. Mm-mm. Yeah, very, Mm-mm. very hot. It's a million degrees. Texas, so. <sighs> yeah, speaking of things that were not happening in the Titanic, a 100 degree heat wave. Yeah. And a drought. A way. Yeah, that's the other thing is that I... I've started now asking this question to everybody that I can remember to ask it to, which is that we're aware that the climate changes are happening a little bit, you know, as much as everyone would like to think that it's not, it it is. And that affects our preservation of historical items. You know, they're pointing out that, you know, Everest is starting to melt. So stuff is coming loose. And as the water heats up, new things are going to start breeding. It's going to change the direction of the sands. And the Titanic wreck is already deteriorating 
I think I've made my opinion pretty clear on what I think about it, but what do you think is our responsibility as enthusiasts to the wreck and its remaining? For the wreck, personally, I I wish Bob Ballard, when he had the chance, when he discovered it, leave it the heck alone, please. I really wish that. I, it's nice to have all the artifacts. You know, I got to go to you know a Titanic exhibit in Galveston, which was really neat to see the artifacts, to see the the cherub at the bottom of the staircase, you know, pre- preserved. But at the same time, should I see that? I don't know if I should have seen that. Yeah. <laughs> I had mixed feelings because I love Titanic and I love to see it, but at the same time, I felt like this should have laid where everyone died. It should have stayed and probably should have stayed put. <laughs> Yeah, and I, that was my my sentiment over it, where I was, I'm, I'm very vocal about that. And maybe if we'd taken better care in the years leading up to it in preserving it, I might think differently and be like, well, now that it's starting to deteriorate, it's our responsibility to save it because we've done so much to keep it alive. But all we've done is plunder it and make it worse, plunder it and make it worse. Like, there's trash now at the bottom of the thing. And I don't, I think I made a weird joke that it was like an iPhone landing on the Titanic is going to be the thing that causes it to collapse because some tourist dropped it from a cruise ship. Just the weight of it is going to co- is. And I don't want to talk about. I'm like I think I've been talking for a solid minute straight, but it's just it's not going to be around forever, and it feels like we're not thinking about how to conserve it and take pictures and make models and stuff. We're 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 now focused on trying to grab shit, and it's like that's the wrong wrong legacy in my opinion my opinion <laughs> but you know what's funny is that i think we've just hit like one hour of recording so unlike the other interviews i might actually be able to stop this one at a normal time all right <laughs> but ryan it was amazing to have you on i i'm really looking to talk to people who are making modern art about the Titanic because it's people like you who really want to capture that authenticity and tell it that are going to help keep the legacy of the ship alive long after it's no longer there. Right. And that's, that's my goal. Preserve those stories, preserve what that ship means, means for me. And so, yeah. That's amazing. Thank Thank you you so much. Having me on. I, I really enjoyed this. This was really good. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. And, guys ryan is so much fun to talk to i'm so excited for his novel to come out and if you guys want to take a look at it go to twitter and instagram his username is ryan's art 86 that's r-y-a-n-s-a-r-t-8-6 that's all one word and that'll be the same on both instagram and twitter you can take a look at his book novel a voyage into legend which i'm happy to say uh as of now i am helping him to edit so i get to have really fun little (laughs) sneak peeks of the story and it's really good you guys should go follow him on his instagram and his twitter keep up to date with him on his book and yeah thank you guys for listening again i'll see you in the next one bye bye titanic talkline was created and produced by me alexia Be sure to keep up with the show on all the social medias at Titanic Talkline on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. That is all one word, Titanic Talkline, T-I-T-A-N-I-C-T-A-L-K-L-I-N-E. If you want to get in touch, be on the show, sponsor the show, or have a question or anything you want to tell me, send me an email at TitanicTalkline, again, all one word, at gmail.com. That's TitanicTalkline at gmail.com. Thanks so much, and I'll see you next time. Bye!